Great. Well, thanks so much for the reading, Cheryl. Uh, friends, great to see you. Um, I should say it's been a, a few Sundays, actually, since myself and my family have been here. Um, we got caught up with that whole COVID thing with um, one of our household getting it, and then um, we sort of isolated for, a, a, whatever, a week or so, and and then the next one gets it, and then it sort of drags on and, and so on. So it's good to be back. It's always good to be here, but especially so today. Uh, friends, what are the significant buildings in your life? Ponder that for a moment, the significant buildings in your life. Uh, for me, one of mine is my childhood home. Um, I lived there from birth, I guess, through to age 17, but in saying that, it's not really the, the amount or the, the quantity of time that I spent there that, that makes it special. It's actually what it came to represent, what that, that house came to mean to me. Because to me, it was a place of fun. It was a place of simplicity, a, a place of love. It's, it's where I belonged. And so coming back home, whether it be from a day at school or from a holiday or whatever it was, as we, we turned into the driveway, as we sort of walked through that doorway, there was always this great sense of relief. Uh, it was good to be home. And so what about you? What are the significant buildings in your life? Uh, maybe it's a, a holiday home. Now, it's probably not the, the home itself. Um, holiday homes, you know, often they can be in disrepair, right? I mean, no, no one wants to do maintenance when they're on holidays. But it's what it represents, isn't it? When we think of the holiday home, we, we think of the good times, we think of the laughter, we think of the rest, we think of the recuperation. Or for you, maybe it's a garage. Maybe that's where the business started. That's maybe where the band started. That's maybe where you, you set up the gym and you got into fitness. And so now, it, for you, it represents independence. It, it represents adventure, success, fun. Which is simply to say that, that buildings can be special because of what they mean to us, what they've come to represent. Well, as we come to today's passage Jesus will tell his disciples about the impending destruction of the Jerusalem temple. That was the most significant building in the lives of the people of the Jewish nation. Because actually buildings can do that too, right? They can be significant not just for individuals, but for nations as a whole. Uh, recall the incredible outpouring of grief when Paris's Notre Dame Cathedral caught fire back in 2019. I don't know if you remember that, but in the days following that, the people pledged $1.2 billion to repair that. Isn't that incredible? $1.2 billion. Why did they do that? It's not just that the building was considered significant for individuals, but actually it was for France itself. That's why the people donated so much money. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, said of the cathedral, it's our history, our literature, our imagination. And so again, buildings. 
They can have a significance, not just for individuals, but for nations as a whole. And so let's take a look at Mark 13 and at this announcement of the destruction of the most significant building in the lives of the Jewish people in the first century. And so we join Jesus in verse 1 as he's leaving the temple. It's at this point that one of his disciples says to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And so this disciple is just so amazed at the scale that probably also just the sheer magnificence of these buildings, of this temple complex, which at this stage we should note is only just a couple of years off being fully complete. Herod had undertaken what would become a 50-year expansion and uh, restoration of the whole temple complex, with the end result was that it really was an amazing building, absolutely amazing complex. Now, I do want to emphasise that because I think today when we hear about an amazing building back in the first century, um, we sort of think to ourselves, sure, it was probably pretty great for back then, but compared to today's buildings maybe not so great, right? That's probably what we think. Well, actually, even by today's standards, this temple was incredible. It was big, just to begin with. The Temple Mount itself, so that's the platform that the complex was built on top of, um, that was made of stone, and it's huge. It's 37 acres. Ponder that for a moment. Uh, It's still there, by the way. You can go to Jerusalem and you can see this Temple Mount, 37 acres. To this day, it's still the biggest man-made platform ever built. Now, the stones that were used to make that platform, some of them are just massive. Some of them weigh 300 tonnes. And there's debate even today about how did they possibly move them into position with the technology they had? How did this happen? But again, that's just the platform that the temple was built upon. The building itself was even more impressive. Again, made of stone at its highest point, 45 metres. Now, for reference, the ceiling in here at its highest point, that's 6 metres. So 45 metres, stone. No wonder it took Herod 50 years to build And again, no wonder that this disciple here is just marvelling at this structure. But notice that Jesus actually has a bit of a different take. He doesn't express his admiration for it. Instead, in verse 2, he says, Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, you can probably imagine just how shocking Jesus' words here really were, to suggest that this giant building might come crashing down, to suggest that something so big, so impressive, something brand new, in actual fact, something that was actually not quite finished yet, to suggest that this would be destroyed, well, that's unthinkable. But not just because of the sheer size of it, But even more than that, unthinkable because of what it meant to the nation. Now, let's explore this in a little bit of detail. It had had meaning at two levels, I think. The religious, but also the political. So, let's, um, let's think about it at the religious level. I think it's fair enough to say that the temple was at the very centre 
of the religious life of the average Jew in the first century. According to the Old Testament, it was where worshippers would go to meet God. Symbolically, that's where he dwelt. That was his house. Not literally, of course. Um, No building can contain God. Solomon makes that exact point when he dedicated the first temple. But symbolically, it's where he dwelt. And so during Passover, for example, which is actually where we're at in Mark's Gospel right now, that's the festival being celebrated in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's population would swell from a normal population of around 30,000 to 180,000 as pilgrims from the nearby regions flocked to Jerusalem to go to the temple. And so the, the temple had this huge religious significance. It was at the heart of the religious life. But actually, we probably know about that. What perhaps we don't know that much about is how it, it also had a, a political meaning. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, maybe a modern-day equivalent would be the Statue of Liberty. That statue depicts the, the Roman goddess Libertas. It's inscribed with a date, 4th of July, 1776, the, the date of the US Declaration of Independence. So that's a political statue. Amongst other things, what that structure says or or what it means, what it represents is that America is a a free, independent country. It's a political statue. Well, to many, the temple in Jerusalem made a similar statement. How so? Well, to see it, we, we need to back up to 167 BC. At that stage, the Seleucid king, Anicus IV, who controlled Judea, wanted to tighten his grip on Jerusalem. Now, one of the ways he did that was by removing some of the religious concessions that he'd given to the Jewish people. And so now, rather than allowing the Jews to continue to practice their religion, it was to be stamped out. And so the Jerusalem temple, it was rebadged. Antiochus dedicated it to Zeus. He sacrificed a pig on the altar there. He made it so that anyone was free to come in to that complex and worship Zeus. Needless to say, this infuriated the Jews and ultimately it led to the Maccabean Revolt. That came to a head in 164 BC when the Maccabean army defeated Antiochus with the result that the Maccabeans marched into Jerusalem, they took control back of the temple, they replaced the defiled altar and they rededicated the whole temple complex to the God of the Bible. In so doing, they established a national festival called the Festival of of Dedication. That's the festival that's celebrated in John's Gospel, so it was continuing to be celebrated in Jesus' day. All of which marked out the temple as this symbol of Jewish freedom, or a monument to Jewish sovereignty. And so again, it's actually really hard to overstate just how shocking Jesus' claim here really was. To say that the temple would be destroyed... It was just offensive. And we see that in the New Testament. Think of Jesus' trial. What was he charged with? In Mark 14, 58, it was claimed that Jesus had said, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another, not made with human hands. And so that's what it was claimed Jesus said and just that claim was serious enough for the death penalty. Or again, as Jesus lay hanging on the cross in 15, 29, 30, Bystanders shook their heads and and heckled him, saying, So, 
you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And so to speak against the temple, that was a big deal. Because the temple was such a significant building in the lives of the first century Jewish people. Little wonder then, then in verse 3, a small group of what I'm sure were somewhat concerned disciples, so here we've got Peter, James, John and Andrew, they approached Jesus privately to find out more. Um, perhaps they were thinking that together they could correct Jesus, perhaps they were thinking that they'd somehow misunderstood Jesus, that he couldn't possibly have meant what he said. But whatever the case, they begin by wanting to know more. So from verse 3, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now again, at this point, I think the disciples are thinking that, you know, it's, maybe it's one thing to say that this brand new temple is going to be destroyed next week. It's quite a different thing to say that it's going to be destroyed in a thousand years. And so what did Jesus mean here? When will this temple be destroyed? Do the disciples actually need to worry about this? Well, Jesus will begin by talking about the sign indicating that it's about to happen. But actually, first, he starts by outlining what we might call the non-signs. And so these are things that will happen, and they are things that, that perhaps might seem significant, events that, to some at least, might suggest that this judgment is about to come. But actually, Jesus says here, those things, they're not the actual sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. And so, when false messiahs appear, verses 5 and 6, and when you hear of wars and rumours of wars in verse 7, and earthquakes and famines, verse 8, Jesus says, well, don't be alarmed. Those things, they're not the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. And actually, during that period, so during this period from um, Jesus' words here in about AD 30, through to when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, we actually have reports of all of these things. The Jewish historian Josephus tells of the the following false messiahs, uh, Thutis, there was a group called the Sons of Judas of Galilee, uh, another guy known only as the Egyptian, um, along with actually a number of other unnamed imposters that Josephus tells about. And there were many wars during that period, along with an earthquake felt in Jerusalem in 67 AD, there was a famine in AD 46. And so these are very useful words from Jesus. The disciples would have lived lived through the events here that, that Jesus lists, and as serious as each of them were, they actually knew that actually those things, they're not the sign. They're not the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. So they, they knew they didn't yet have to flee Jerusalem. Now, just based on on that alone, the disciples, I think, were were probably thinking, okay, well, that that sounds like it's a little time away. Maybe we don't need to worry about this. But from verses 9 to 13, well, I guess they're both wrong and right about that. Uh, Right in that it would be some time, wrong in that they had nothing to worry about. From verse 9, On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. 
And so before the temple is destroyed, the disciples, they will be at risk. They'll be arrested. They'll be put on trial. But in saying that, God would give them the words to say. And actually during this period, the gospel would be preached to all nations. Now we should pause here and, and just ask, well, what did Jesus mean when he said that actually that between AD 30 and AD 70, that the gospel would be preached to all nations? Is that, is that every single person alive at the time? Uh, was it every living person in the known world? Or was it people from every different people group in the known world? So maybe representative people from each group. Now, I actually think that would be quite difficult to work out what Jesus meant, except I think the Apostle Paul gives us a hint. In Romans fifteen nineteen, Paul can say that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I've fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, with the result that then in verses 23 and 24... He reasons, since, he reasons that since there is no more place for me to work in these regions, he'll then go to Spain. So I take it the Apostle Paul can say regarding a very large area that actually he's fully proclaimed the gospel to that region. So I take it it's not every single person there heard the gospel, but I do think what he's saying is that it was publicly declared in all of those areas. And so coming back to what Jesus is saying here, what I think he's getting at is that before the temple is destroyed, the gospel will be proclaimed in every part of the known world. And that happened. And so during this period leading up to the destruction of the temple, it won't be a time of waiting for the disciples. They're going to be busy. It'll be difficult. They'll even be betrayed by family and friends, none of which will be the sign that destruction is about to come. That's just what life will be like during that time. Well, as we come to verse 14, the disciples are going to be told about the actual sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. But look, I'm guessing that this might be very cryptic for us. Let's have a listen from verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's a little cryptic for us, isn't it? The disciples need to be on the lookout for the abomination that causes desolation. What is that? Well, look, as you might expect, there is an Old Testament context for this. In the book of Daniel, there are four references to the abomination that causes desolation. So that's Daniel 8, 13, Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 11, 31, and Daniel 12, 11. They're really significant references. In each one of them, we're told about this foreign army that comes in, invades, they take control of the temple and when they do that, they discontinue the daily sacrifices. And so then they set up this abomination that causes desolation. Now, um, what did this mean? Well, remember how I told you about Antiochus in 167 BC. He, He defiled the temple. He stopped 
the daily sacrifices there. He set up an altar to Zeus. Well, in that episode, the Jews of the day saw that as the fulfillment of Daniel's words. Yet here, Jesus is telling his disciples to see a second fulfillment of Daniel's words there, which is to say that the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed is when the daily sacrifices will once again be stopped. He's saying that's the sign. That's the time to leave, head for the hills. The destruction is imminent. And again, this actually would have been super useful for the disciples and for the Christians during that period because when it came to the Roman campaign against Judea, it it really kind of dragged on. It started towards the end of AD 66 and it was sort of on and off again really as as sort of troops were drawn away to to sort of take care of issues back in Rome and, and so forth. But it started towards the end of AD 66 with the Romans taking control of quite a bit of Judea by early 68. Then in mid-69, all of Judea except Jerusalem and two other towns had had actually been put under siege and, and taken. But it wasn't until Passover AD 70 that Titus's army arrived at the walls of Jerusalem. And so you think, well, when throughout that, that five-year military campaign were the disciples to flee? Well, it's when the daily sacrifices stopped. That was the sign. So let's think about this. Why, why destroy the temple? This building that had so much meaning for God's people. Why destroy it? Well, actually, it's, it's not just the existence of building that can have meaning, but also its destruction. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, recall what we've seen over the last few weeks. Um, in a very, you know, broad summary, we might say that, that Jesus has been condemning the religious leaders of the day. Now, if we know our Old Testaments, what then should we now expect? What happens when religious leaders go astray and and lead the nation away from God? Well, think of our first reading, 1 Kings chapter 9 from verse 6. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands, the decrees I've given you, And go off to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them and will reject this temple that I've consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple. And so in the grand narrative of the scriptures, what should happen when the religious leaders lead the people away from God and away from His Messiah? Well, it's really quite simple. The temple must be destroyed. And that's what happened. Just as Jesus said it would in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Uh, the Roman Emperor Vespasian had his son siege the city. That was five months under siege. We actually know a huge amount about this battle. Josephus wrote about it extensively. Uh, it was rough 
And that, that's, that's a ridiculous understatement. It was rough. He tells about how the city was surrounded. The food lines were cut. Starvation set in. That mothers ate their own children. And finally, he tells about how the, the temple overflowing with those who thought that God would protect them. But caught fire. Over a million Jews died in that battle. It was like nothing the world had ever seen. But again, let's think more about what the destruction of this temple means. From Jesus' words here, we have every indication that the destruction of the temple is a moment of extreme significance in the life of God's people. Uh, perhaps like the toppling of the, the statue of Saddam Hussein in, in 2003 in Baghdad. That was significant for the people, I take it. Well, the falling of the Berlin Wall, 1989, again, very significant for the people. So too, the destruction of the temple. Extremely significant. That's precisely what the language there in verses 24 and 25 tells us. Let me, let me read those for you. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. What is that getting at? Well, it's symbolic language. And the Old Testament would use, use it to, to speak of very significant events. And so Ezekiel used that type of language to describe the devastating judgment that the Babylonian army would bring on God's people. In Ezekiel 32, verse 7 and 8, we read, When I snuff you out, I'll cover the heavens and darken their stars. I'll cover the sun with a cloud and, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I'll bring darkness over your land, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, actually, that didn't happen. When God's people were defeated in battle by the Babylonians, that, everything didn't go dark, and we shouldn't have expected it to. That's not actually how this language works. This is symbolic language. Technically, we, we've jumped into apocalyptic language. And, and what it's doing, by talking about a significant change in, in the natural ordering of the earth, what it's saying is that this event is of extreme significance. In, in language today, I think we'd simply say this is earth-shattering. What's happened is earth-shattering. It is that important, that significant. And so what did this judgment mean? What is this, this moment of extreme significance? Well, actually, it's the end of God's old covenant people. Just let that sink in for a moment. It is the end of God's old covenant people. From verses 26 and 27. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he'll send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is a huge change. A huge change in the way that God would engage with his people. No longer would they gather around the temple in Jerusalem. That, that's not how it's going to work anymore. That system is dead. It's gone. It's been replaced. 
has been replaced by Jesus who fulfills Daniel's prophecy. We actually need to take a close look at what Daniel prophesied here, so let's, let's read what he said there. He spoke about how he saw one, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and, and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let's be very clear on what Daniel was talking about here. One like a son of man going from this earth to the Father to be given authority, power, glory and who from heaven would then be drawing people to himself. That's what Daniel looked forward to. And what Jesus is saying is, actually, that's him. He will replace the temple. Rather than the people going to the temple to meet God, they will come to him. And so the destruction of the temple has meaning. Incredible meaning is extremely significant. This is the end of God's old covenant people. This is the replacement by God's new covenant people in Jesus, which is what he's continuing to build today. Now, just to be clear, these things didn't happen simultaneously. No, no. The new people of God started with Jesus and his death on the cross. When Jesus said in three days he'll destroy and rebuild the temple, that's what he's getting at. That's what the tearing of the temple curtain is getting at in Mark 15, 38. They didn't happen simultaneously. There was some distance there. That God's new people started and then we have the end of God's old covenant people, AD 70. Well, when will it happen? Let's jump back into Mark here. When will the temple be destroyed? What does Jesus tell them? Well, from verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. That's what happened. 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, it all happened. What does it mean for us today? Well, I think verses 32 to 37 can actually be directly applied to us. Because just as the disciples couldn't predict precisely when God's judgment on the temple would fall, so they just needed to be ever vigilant. Well, so to us today. We don't know precisely when God's final act of judgment will fall on this world. We don't know when King Jesus will return. It could be any day. So have a listen again to these words from verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. 
It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I think these words are both easy and difficult to apply. Easy, I think, if you haven't yet turned to Jesus, uh, because you should do it. Uh, Totally, do it now. Uh, Waiting to do that makes no sense. Now, maybe you need to find out more, maybe you don't think you know enough about Jesus to do that, well, take the opportunity to do that in the response time. Let us know and we'll get you in a Christianity Explored course. You can find out more about Jesus, but don't delay. Don't think I might do that sometime, but never actually get round to it. So do it. A bit harder when you've been a Christian for some time, I think. How do you keep hold of that urgency? How do you avoid the danger of complacency? Well, I think that a big part of staying on track as a Christian is simply by being reminded of the truth. That's why reading the Bible each day, I just think is so beneficial. It keeps reminding you of the truth that Jesus is Lord, that he will come back. That's not easy, is it? Daily Bible reading is not easy for everyone. Just like we might struggle with healthy eating, uh, we might struggle with our finance, finances and, and not spending. I think we can struggle to do this stuff when we, when we try to do it all by ourselves. That's why I think being a Christian is actually a team sport. We help each other to stay on track. Uh, a bit like exercise, you know, it's hard to exercise by yourself. Most of us, we, we just don't have the willpower to get up, whatever it is, 6am every morning and, and pound the pavement, head to the gym, whatever it is. But it's different when you're part of a team, isn't it? It's different when you do it with others, when you know that actually your buddies will be there. They're waiting for you, they're expecting you, and actually, if you're not doing so, well, they're going to help you. And so how do you stay on track as a, a Christian? How do we ensure that we we keep being reminded that Jesus is Lord and that he will return, that he's coming back? Well, so much of it is doing things together, I think. We come to church together to be reminded. We go to growth groups during the week to be reminded. We've got other groups too, don't we? We've got WhatsApp groups of, of people who encourage each other to be reminded. So many things we can do, structures that we can work together to do this. Which is also to say that I don't think you need to be too concerned if as a Christian you're not always learning something new. Because sometimes the hardest things to learn are the things that we already know. Let's pray. Father, 
This world stands under your judgment. Help us to remember that. Father, one day Jesus will return to judge. Help us to remember that. But Father, in him we are forgiven. Help us to remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.